0: Thank you so much, thank you so much, what a wonderful privilege it is to be here and share with you and first off, Margie left instructions that I have to apologise on her behalf, she was looking forward to being here this weekend but the ten and a half hour drive from Tannum to Tenterfield earlier in the week knocked her around just a little bit and then uh, spent a couple of days socialising, catching up with so many old friends and all the rest of it, and by yesterday afternoon she says, I really don't think I could face another two-hour drive and another two-hour drive tomorrow just to get back again, and I'm not feeling well. And as it turns out, by this morning she wasn't real well. She's generally keeping excellent health, so that's been a real blessing. don't know if you were watching Hillsong Conference at all during this week. But so many people spotted where our Prime Minister was interviewed at Hillsong. And that was a highlight for the week for me. But one of the highlights of that interview was when Pastor Brian asked him a particular question. I wasn't ready for the answer, so I didn't take notice of what the question was. But I understand it had a slight theological bent to it. And his answer was... I'm not a preacher, I'm just a prime minister. (laughs) And I've got to admit that gelled with me so much. I remember uh, Spurgeon, the great preacher from 150 years ago, but his word was, if God has called you to preach the word, don't stoop to being a mere king. What an awesome privilege it is to take God's word and share it in whatever format we are able to do that. And I don't take it lightly. I love sharing God's word. Jesus, on one occasion, was talking with the disciples and he said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. And I'd like to do a little bit of a treasure hunt today. Would that that be okay? But the interesting thing is that uh, he brings out new treasures and it's lovely when we have new things come out of the Word and wow, we've never seen that before but it's even more exciting. When we find an old gem that we haven't looked at for a little while and we pull it up and we hold it up to the light and we say, isn't that awesome? God has blessed us so much. And as we're looking at it, all of a sudden it catches the light and we say, whoa, I've seen that gem so many times but I've never seen that facet. And Today, I, I was a little bit concerned because God laid it on my heart to take a story that is so familiar that when I tell you that I'm talking about David and Goliath, three parts of you will go home. If not physically, mentally. You've all heard the story. Most of you could come up and tell the story. As a matter of fact, if you go out into the world, most people can tell you the basics of the story of David and Goliath. Are you with me still? Oh, that's good, you've come along. I've just pulled the treasure out of the box and we're just enjoying it. And I want to spend some time just elaborating because I believe that God has something for us today out of a treasure that is old and familiar, but I believe he's also got some things that are just a little bit new tucked away inside there for us today. (coughs) We're all familiar that... David was confronted with a guy by the name of Goliath. Goliath from a town of Gath. And Goliath belonged to what tribe? What, who, who was the nation? Aha, uh-huh, are you with me? The Philistines. The Philistines were inhabitants of the land of Canaan. Is that right? No, not exactly. Oh, hang on, I thought they were. Well, actually, the Canaanites were there when the children of Israel went into the promised land. And you might remember that they were given strict instructions what to do with those people. But they weren't Philistines, they were Canaanites. Philistines were a tribe of people that had come down from uh, Phoenicia up Lebanon way... They were seafaring people and originally had come across somewhere in Europe, so they tell me, but they had worked their way around, seafaring people, but loved to move into an area that was open for habitation and they would move in. And as the children of Israel were moving in from the east over the Jordan River, the Philistines were simultaneously inhabiting the area around uh, the Mediterranean Sea. As a matter of fact, the flat area around Tel Aviv and across to the hills mounting up to Jerusalem, that area is still known as the Philistine Plains. Okay, now they get a bit of a bad rap, these Philistines. As soon as we hear Philistine, we say, yeah, he's a bit of a Philistine. Yeah, a bit of a rough character. But in actual fact, most of the time, most of the time, they lived peacefully with their neighbours, even with the children of Israel, except that both groups were expanding. And at times, they came into areas of conflict and when that happened, it was all on for everybody, all right? So, generally peace, generally peace, but when they came together, look out. One side, children of God, the other side, anything but, worshipping a whole bunch of pagan gods of one kind or another. Okay, that's, that's sort of background. Just uh, give you a bit more of an idea... Uh, they were on the uh, uh, the coastal plains as I said but they didn't have one king they operated on a system of government that was based on city states so the leader of one city would become king in that area but he wasn't subject to anybody else but when they got together they would work out their plans Uh, the towns that they had were Gath and Ashdod, Ashkelon, Ekron and Gaz. You'll probably find those in scripture. You'll find them as you go looking on the maps. And one of the interesting things was this is a period of history where we are converting from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. Interesting that the children of Israel coming out of Egypt... Familiar with bronze and working with bronze. The Philistines, coming from where they did, had moved into the Iron Age, and they worked in iron and steel. As a matter of fact, we read a few chapters earlier. By the way, we're first Samuel chapter 17, you'll be reading about the story of David and Goliath. But if you go back a couple of chapters previous you'll discover that uh, the Philistines were very careful to guard the secret of working with steel because it was such a tremendous advantage in battle. A bronze sword would cut you and damage you just as much as a steel sword. Believe me. Don't want to get hit with one of those. But a sword isn't used just for hitting, it is also used for defending. And a bronze sword versus a steel sword, and the steel sword will cut the bronze sword right in half. And the person holding the bronze sword is left armless. And so the Philistines, aware of the military advantage of this technology that they had, were very careful to guard it, and they made sure that even though they were able to sell the technology to the uh, Israelis, they were careful not to give it to them. So when they needed some steel, something for the farm, a reaping hook or whatever, they would take it down and they would give it to the Philistine blacksmiths. They would go out the back and make sure that nobody saw what they were doing and they'd bring it out and charge them for the process. As a matter of fact... David, uh, I'm sorry, Saul and Jonathan were engaged in battle against the Philistines at one stage and it turns out that there there were two swords in the whole of the Israeli army that were made of steel, Saul and Jonathan. Everybody else had the very, very inferior and you read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Okay, so that gives us just a little bit of a background of what is going on when we talk about the confrontation that has come up once again. And of course the most famous of the Philistines, and there are some that we do remember, but the most famous of them was a guy by the name of Goliath. Uh, Those of you who have sort of read a little bit more about him will be familiar with him. Uh, came from a, a town called Gath. His height was six cubits and a span. We all know exactly how tall that is, don't we? Six cubits and a span. Never heard such nonsense. Okay, just get it in rough terms. About 2.35 metres. About nine foot plus, a little tiny bit. Uh, he was... Hang on a second. He's, he's he's a big man. He's a big man. I couldn't t- reach the top of his head. He, he was a he was a lump of a guy. He was carrying a record. He had a big bronze helmet that he was wearing on his head. Uh, he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze, and it weighed about a thousand shekels. And when I w- checked up on what a thousand shekels would weigh. I discovered that it weighs about a bag of concrete, for those of you who are familiar with carrying bags of concrete. So every time he dressed himself up, he started off with wearing one of those. He had a uh, spear, like a weaver's beam, and they said that the head of it weighed about the same as a large-sized bowling ball. You know when you go 10pin bowling? You sort of go around, you know, if you're macho, you go looking for one with 15 on it, that's the one. Uh, if you're a lady, you've got more sense and go for one that says about five, it saves getting an arm longer than the other. But this one was like the big heavy one, just the head of his spear. Just gives us a bit of an idea. Now, he was confronted by King Saul Saul himself was an interesting guy. It said that Saul was head and shoulders above the rest of the men in the Israeli camp. So, if you like, we could stand Kesher up and say he's the tallest one here. I don't know if he is, he's pretty close to it, he's a big man. But Saul was head and shoulders above Kesha. So, he was not as big as not as big as Goliath, but most certainly within the league. And there was a confrontation between these two giants. They came head to head. I was a little bit surprised. Margie and I were... I'm sorry, we haven't got any pictures. I I thought we had that, but it's not going to work today, so we won't worry about it. But Margie and I had the privilege of being in Israel a couple of years ago. And while we were there, our Israeli guide was a Christian guy. And also honest. Uh, Israeli guides aren't always that honest. As a matter of fact, he was telling us he shudders at some of the things that tourists are told when they get over to Israel. But he was saying there are some places that we can be absolutely certain of. And from his description, he'd taken us uh, a little bit south of Jerusalem. uh, Probably half a day's, no, wouldn't even be that. uh, A day's journey by foot, uh, an hour or so in the bus. But he was sharing with us this particular place and he says this is almost certainly the place of this confrontation. Now, in my mind's eye, I had a hill and on the other side a hill and maybe a valley down through between. I was a little bit surprised. There was a valley in between and there was uh, had been a brook there but it was dried out by the time we were there. But they... Ah, yes, they have got it. Look at this. But the the little pathway there is like a little brook with a fairly large hill in behind it. Interesting that there's three hills. But as it turns out, the uh, Philistines had gone to one of the hills. Israel had probably gone to this particular hill and they were on the other side of it. And they were holding on to the military advantage. Nobody was willing or ready to come down from their hill to attack the other side. Because as soon as they do that, the guys on top just throw rocks at them, throw spears at them, throw arrows at them and they could decimate them and the uh, guys on the bottom can't do anything about it until they get up there. And so there was a stalemate and it had gone on for 40 days and... At the crux of this, out comes this Goliath. And he says, look, we've been here for 40 days. I'm getting hungry. Uh, I think it's about time that we sorted it out and we went and got a macas for ourselves. So why don't we, you send your giant. Who, Who was the giant for the Israelis? Saul. Saul. Why don't you send your... Man, to come down and fight with me and we'll make an arrangement that whoever wins will will declare that the battle, they've won the battle we'll become your servants, you'll become our servants whichever way it goes he marched up and down shouting defiance to try and terminate this particular battle so okay we're a little bit familiar with all of that But there's one other person who was involved in this confrontation. David. I've had this message simmering inside of me for weeks. And partway through that i suddenly became aware of something i have never seen before i held up the treasure and there's a facet there got to admit it scared me when i first saw it can i share it with you i'm hoping it doesn't scare you too too much We've read the story so many times, but usually it's done in the context of a Sunday school. So there's some things that you don't tell about a story when you're talking to Sunday school kids. Is that right? (laughs) I'll be careful. Is it possible that when David prayed his period of confession following his sin with Bathsheba, is it possible that he just unearthed a little truth about himself and his background that he was aware of, that simmered and lodged within his heart You remember when he prayed? I was born in sin. I was conceived in sin. Now, we've always said, oh, well, that's right. (laughs) We're all sinners. But as I start doing some more interrogation of David and David's life, I suspect he was speaking a truth about his background that we don't talk about in Sunday school. Is it possible? As a matter of fact, I'm convinced it is probable that David was an illegitimate child. His father, there's no doubt about it, was Jesse. His mother, we don't know. Possibly one of the servants in the house. Maybe somebody else. Now, when I first thought about it, you know, the, the evidence from that psalm really isn't strong enough to build a case. But then when I start reading his story, I find a boy, youngest son, I don't know how many daughters there were in the family, but the youngest of eight boys. And he was treated like an outsider. He was treated like somebody that doesn't belong here. even his father treated him more like an outsider than like a real son. So you remember when the prophet Samuel comes to anoint the new king, bring your sons. And the, the village elders were in on the deal as Jesse brings out his seven sons. And the village elders agreed with, ah, it's probably him. No, it's not him. Probably him. Probably him. And eventually they've gone through all seven and they're all saying, well, who could it possibly be? If it's not one of them and it's one of Jesse's sons, well, well we, we know about him, but... Uh, he wouldn't count, would he? And even Jesse didn't bring his son David and own him as one of his sons, possibly to be anointed. Matter of fact, if you read Psalm, my memory, it's interesting. If we read Psalm 69, I wasn't too far off the track after all. If you read Psalm 69, Psalm 69 was written about the period from David's birth until he ascended the throne. Not until he was anointed, but until he actually ascended the throne. And he talks in detail in there about the rejection that he received from his own family, from his own friends. If I can pick up just one verse there quickly. Uh, I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. Then in Psalm 51, in sin, my mother conceived me. Can I just leave that in the background for a little bit? We talk about young David sent out to care for the sheep. He'd have learnt the craft of being a shepherd, looking after sheep. They don't look after themselves. As a matter of fact, sheep have a a funny habit the only reason why they don't lie down and die today is they think it can cause more inconvenience if they do it tomorrow. Any sheep fa- farmers here? You'll understand what I'm talking about. Those of you who has gone over your head, cattle don't have that problem, do they? They want to stay alive. Sheep seem to have an idea that will pass out. But David had the job of caring for and he learnt the skill of looking after them from a very early age and he's out by himself. And it was traditional. They would go two or three days' journey from home. They would take enough provision to last them for some time and other people, other servants would come and bring food to him wherever he was going to be just so that he could stay with the sheep all the time. Does that sound like a good social occasion for a young man? Do you think he might have been alone and lonely? But as lonely as he might have felt, as ostracised as he might have felt from his family, he'd taken a guitar slung over his back, if you like, But he'd also taken, along with his normal shepherd's staff, shepherd's crook, he also took with him a sling. And they had started to teach him how to operate a sling. Andrew was telling us just before that he's had a bit of a slash at using a a sling. You know, uh, you'll often see the story depicted of David with a slingshot, the way we have a slingshot, you know, where you hold it. No, 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 no a slingshot isn't li- or a sling isn't like that at all. It's actually, and the guys might even be able to dig up a picture for us. a sling looks something like that. Just a pouch, a couple of rocks, and a couple of long thongs. And you'll see the loop where uh, you'd ho- hook that into your hand some way, and the other end would just be held loosely in the hand, rock placed into the pouch and you swirl it round your head, release the string, and the rock would go to its destination. The destination, the first time you tried it, could be anywhere from there to there. Am I right? (laughs) If you could hit the side of a barn from 20 paces, you were doing really well. But after you've practised it for a while, you could actually get it down to the point where you could get within 20 metres of the destination but it takes a lot of practice. Can, Can I just divert for a second? God has placed into our hands weapons of warfare but guess what? They probably don't work the first time you use them. They probably don't work very effectively the second time you use them. Have any of you ever tried your hand at witnessing to somebody and found that this precious gospel that you were sharing seemed to go over their head? Can I make a suggestion for you? Pick it up and do it again. And pick it up and do it again. And pick it up and do it again. again. And keep right on doing it because even though you can't get within 20 metres of the destination, you're a long way closer than when you first started. And that weapon, that weapon has to be practised over and over and over again. It is said that a good hand with a sling, and it was used as a weapon of warfare, a good hand with a sling could aim at a hare, as in H-A-I-R, not H-A-R-E, and hit it. Do you know how far they could throw a stone with one of those slings? What do you reckon, here to the back of the church? Any thoughts? What do we got about 50 metres? 50 metres? 100 metres? Any, any takers on 100 100 metres? 100 metres, length of a football field, that's a fair way to get a. Any takers on that? 400 metres. Bows and arrows in warfare were ineffective because an army with slings could stand out of range of a bow and arrow and just hurl rocks and knock people over. Now, we, we have the Sunday school song where... Five little stones. He took wrong concept altogether. I don't know. The, you guys got that other picture there? That was, that was me. That was my good-looking hands there holding one of the rocks that came out of that stream. But the guys in the know tell me that that is medium size for a slings stone. they can be half as big again. If one of those hit you, you knew that you had been hit. (laughs) I love the word that, this word of God that we have is powerful. It's effective. Yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact, Uh, If you like a little bit of history, you might remember uh, Queen Esther was with uh, the king Artaxerxes or whatever his name was. At one stage, he decided that he was going to wander across and have a bit of a go at Alexander the Great. And when he went, he was very successful because he took an army armed with slings and... The Greek army were armed with bows and arrows and couldn't get near them. And the Greek army withdrew and said, we can't do what... or we can't attack them using our standard weaponry. We need to go down the same track. And so they quickly started training and recruiting guys that could use slings. And then they decided, why do, would we use rocks where advanced? And so they started making lead pellets about so big that weighed the same as a big rock and then had greater trajectory and they were able to go on and win that particular war using slings. Slings are a great idea, aren't they? Except that David, out by himself, plays the guitar for a while, worships for a while. He doesn't know it. But God has placed inside that man a king he's just looking after sheep he's just playing music to himself he's just getting out and taking that sling and using it to practice and eventually he got so that he'd get within 20 meters of the tree and then he got so that he'd get within five meters of the tree And then he got so that he could hit the tree one time in three. And then he got to the point where he could hit the tree every single time. And then he got to the point where he could aim whether he wanted to hit near the top of the tree or near the bottom of the tree. But only because he was constantly practicing and working and taking the gift that God had given to him and using it to the absolute maximum. Am I speaking to anybody here today? God has placed into us God has placed into us our particular gifts and He wants us to use them and hone them and use them again. Not necessarily in the spiritual gifting that we all think, oh, that means preaching. No, not necessarily. If God has called you to be a school teacher, then you need to hone that and use it because God wants to use it. He has placed inside of you. You're not going to be a shepherd all of your life. God has placed inside of you a king. We are called to be kings and priests and he wants us to grow and train ourselves to the point where we can be effective on the day that we are called to use what God has given for us. But one day things change. I I can hardly imagine The loneliness, if what we were saying before, where David has been rejected by his family because they don't own him as part of the family. I can't imagine how that would feel running through his head, regurgitating over and over again. But one day somebody comes and says they want you back at home. What do they want me for? I don't know, there's some prophet guy by the name of Samuel there and they say they're not going to eat until you come. And he goes in, what do you want? What do you want? And all all of them are standing there waiting for him. Even the elders of the village are there. And Samuel takes the horn of oil and pours it over his head and declares... I anoint you, King of Israel. Interesting thing takes place. There's only two people recognize that anointing. Think about it. He has just been anointed King of Israel. And is ignored by everybody there except Samuel and himself. God has anointed him. You have been anointed. I don't care what your background is. I don't care what your past is. You have been anointed. You have been called. God has given to you the gift of salvation. He's given to us the Holy Spirit and He has anointed us to be kings. Nobody else might recognize it and it doesn't matter one iota. If God has anointed you, you are anointed. Take it, wear it, use it. You know what they did with David? They sent him back to look after the sheep. But guess what? Before, he was a shepherd with a king inside of him. But right now, he's a king with a shepherd inside of him. And every king needs a good shepherd's heart. But now there's a difference to the way he does everything he does. And when we recognize the anointing that God has placed in us on us, everything, everything changes in the way we do life. As parents, we do it differently. As sons and daughters, we do it differently. As employees, we do it differently. As employers, we do it differently because we have been changed and we recognize that we are Kings anointed by God. Nobody else recognizes it. Nobody cares about it. But God does. And you do. And you wear it with pride. So David goes back to looking after sheep. Then one day, another message. They want you back at the household. And it almost seems to me as if he's been demoted, send somebody else to look after the sheep. But we want you to be a messenger boy. And he is the king, being told to run errands for his father. Want you to go out to where. Your brothers are. Take them suppl- some supplies, give them news from home, and bring news back of how they're getting on in this battle. And the king shepherd turns up on the hill while he's there, he's the blasphemous, arrogant shouting from Goliath. Send me a man that we can fight. You are servants of Saul. Hey, wrong picture. Wrong picture. If ever we get the idea that we're servants of Saul, we've got it absolutely wrong. We're servants of the living God. And when David arrived and heard that, he immediately said, no, 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 no. I'm a servant of God. And this man is shouting blasphemy against my God. They can say what they like about Saul. I don't care. But he doesn't say that about my God everything inside of him the king inside of him wills up and says we are going to do something about this what's going to be given to the one who overcomes this giant and they elaborate oh this is going to happen that's going to happen he's going to become the son-in-law of the king whoopee do who'd want to be son-in-law of the king Uh, mind you she might have been a very nice lady I'm they said that he, he him and his family are going to be tax free now you 're talking we sort of uh, but it 's interesting that all of those didn't influence one other person to go and have a go. but when you are a servant of the king, when you are anointed to be a king, all of a sudden, the giant means nothing, and David. Goes to Saul. Saul says to him, yes, you can go. Here I'll... Actually, it's a little bit humorous, isn't it? When we think about it. He takes off his armour and puts it on... How big did we saw that Saul was? And he takes his armour and puts it on David. (laughs) Can hardly move, hardly walk with it. But he says leave it alone I'll just take what God has given to me and he goes out in the name of the Lord to confront the giant the rest is history and so was Goliath he uh, probably didn't even see the stone that hit him a little dot in the sky just getting bigger and oblivion. David slew Goliath, not with a sword and a spear, but with what God had placed into his hand. Hey, you and I are confronted by giants. Anybody agree with that? Yeah. Right now in Australia, we are confronted with a mess of giants. Over the last 20 years, we have seen giants arrive in this so-called Christian country to the point that we could barely recognize it as being a Christian country at all. We've seen the rise and people boast about the fact that we're a secular country. Take out the word secular. Every time you hear it, say, we're ungodly, anti-God country. And that's what they're boasting about. Have we gone that way? Absolutely we have. And we are on a slide that is going far, far worse. We talk about the uh, problems we're having with the inroads of uh, Islam into this country. Ten years ago, well, 15 years ago now, I was at a conference and the speakers at the conference were forecasting that within a very short period of time we would be seeing Islam become very much part of Australian culture and they will be demanding and everything they forecast has come true plus some. Hey. Culture that is anti-Christian has been adopted into mainstream Australia to a degree that we find hard to understand but it's still going on and getting rampantly faster. Inside Australia right now there is the problem of the giant of greed and we hear of some of the salaries that some of our leaders are paying for themselves. People that will pay themselves 10, 20 times the rate of pay that our Prime Minister gets and demanding more. And it goes on and on and on. We've got the culture of death with abortion, euthanasia, etc. I don't know if any of you followed a, a case in Britain recently, uh, a young lady who was uh, slightly mentally handicapped not seriously but slightly but as it turns out she was pregnant and some of the doctors decided it would be better if she didn't become a mother so we're going to take her baby and murder it and in the process of doing that it ended up going to the court and the first off the court said yes absolutely the doctors are right It went to an appeal court and just this last 10 days or so the appeal court has overturned it and she's being allowed to keep her baby but folks from Britain say that is just tip of the iceberg it is happening all of the time and it's happening in Australia we're heading down that track yeah and of course we're all aware of the gross immorality that's there now so we are facing giants But can I suggest something? Our greatest giant that we're facing, I can speak for myself, and I suspect most of us will recognise, the greatest giant I have to face looks back at me every time I look in the mirror. And if you think about it, David's greatest giant wasn't so much Goliath as the giant within his own head that would have been saying you're not one of the men you're not one of the boys you're not one of the family you don't belong here you're nothing but a shepherd you don't you're not worth anything your family doesn't appreciate you you don't and it just goes on and on and on and fear And worry, work their way up. Uh, David Jeremiah, uh, American preacher, just recently did a survey of people and asking them about the giants that they were confronting within their lives. And interesting, there was no outside source being mentioned. As a matter of fact, jealousy came in at 3%, anger at 11%, temptation... I thought it might have been higher, but it came in at 14%, and loneliness at 14%. The greatest two were both at the top worry and fear. People facing worry and fear within their own lives. So, need to wrap this up. I just wanted to suggest to you some answers from David as we're confronting. Our own giants. First of all, choose your own weapon. Choose your own weapon, not somebody else's. What weapons can we use? Word of God is such a wonderful one. Worship. Get into the habit of spending time worship. When the negative thoughts start, start floating through, change channels. Go to a worship channel. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. We change channels to a channel of faith. My God can do awesome things and he is going to do awesome things through me and for me. And Then we come to the physical instruments probably last in the heap. In David's case, he was using a sling. Some people might be using a guitar or some sort of musical instrument. It could be anything at all that God has placed in your hand. Use it as best as you can. Practice your weapon. You don't learn to use a sling on the day of the battle. You learn to use it by using it constantly, constantly, practicing and practicing it. And each time a new experience becomes a new practice session for a bigger battle. David practices sling, but he also practices worship and his faith. Use your weapon. Get out and use it. We are in a battle. So we use worship. We use the word of God. We use our faith. And we use those physical instruments. I was interested to read an excerpt from Wesley's diary it was written I don't know 100 years 150 years ago but he wrote the diary for the month of May and on the first Sunday in May he wrote in his diary that he preached in a church and was thrown out of the church In the afternoon, he preached in another church and they had an elders meeting and told him he is never ever to come back. On the next Sunday, he preached in another church and had exactly the same results. In the afternoon, he preached in another church. You guessed it. Third Sunday, same thing. Fourth Sunday, same thing. Do you think he would be facing a bout of discouragement? But he exercised his faith. First Sunday in June, he no longer finding a church that would allow him to preach, he preached on the roadside and the authorities came and chased him away, closed him down. In the afternoon, he went and preached in a field in a paddock. To 10,000 people. When we exercise. The weapons that God has placed in our hands. When we recognize that no matter what our past may have been. No matter what people bring against us. We are kings. We are and God has and will use our lives, our experiences to build his kingdom. God bless you.